0: Welcome to the Science & SaaS Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things science, fitness, and motherhood.
1: We're your hosts, Dr. Rachel Reed
0: and Dr. Brittany Masteller.
1: We both have PhDs in kinesiology and a passion for sharing science with the world.
0: We created this podcast to have unfiltered conversations about complex topics that we think deserve attention.
1: While listening, you can expect to learn everything from implementing the scientific method to raising little humans and how to keep your head above water through it all.
0: This podcast will cover three major topics exercise science, motherhood, and the fitness industry.
1: We firmly believe that science is for everyone, that coffee should only be drunk out of a mug, and that lipstick makes everything better.
0: So go ahead and hit the subscribe button and make sure to join us every Monday for our conversation with your favorite PhDs. welcome back to the science and sass podcast today we're focusing on quite a hot topic in 2021 and that is the links between physical activity and COVID-19. Now, if you have not been living under a rock, I'm sure you've heard something about uh, these two uh, topics and how they're related and connected. We're going to talk a little bit about it today. Um, And In the physical activity in public health Space recently, we've actually seen a few noteworthy publications surrounding this topic. So now that we have, you know, over a year of data, we have some more um, publications that have actually looked at this in a more objective way. So um, they're talking about how physically active people tend to have better outcomes related, when related to COVID and experiencing COVID. So we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit, but also we're going to start off by just talking about, you know, what we already know about physical activity, because I think a lot of the things that are coming to light are things that Rachel and I are like, we've been (laughs) saying this, like as physical activity specialists, we've been saying this forever, um, and we're glad that this is getting the attention that we think it deserves, but Uh, We just want to kind of go over physical activity in general before we dive into COVID-19-specific publications. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I couldn't agree more. I've been reading some of the headlines in the news. We're going to talk about one of the big papers that just came out that's really garnering a lot of attention. And when I read the headlines, it's like, exercise improves aerobic capacity, and it's like breaking news. And we're like, duh. Um, (laughs) But let's dive into that just a little bit. So I want to start by talking about um, the physical activity guidelines. And this is a document that is created and updated every, uh, every so often systematically by a number of experts in exercise science field and in related fields. And they have the pretty tough job of looking at the culmination of like decades and decades of evidence, lots of different kinds of evidence. So public health, epidemiological physical activity data, randomized controlled trials, you know, every kind of evidence is considered so that we can understand all of the benefits surrounding physical activity and also determine some sort of minimum dose that if people can meet that dose, they are eligible to basically accrue like a host of health benefits associated with physical activity. And so the guidelines have a lot more information than just what we're going to cover here. I think it's like 200 plus pages. I mean, it's hundreds hundreds of pages.
0: And there there are guidelines for special populations as well. So there are specific guidelines for children, pregnant people, older adults, people with disabilities. So So it's a really
1: good public health level resource that explains things in a way that you don't have to, you know, be a PhD in exercise phys to understand and read and be able to take away key Key action items from. So, if you are somebody who's a coach in this space, this is the kind of document that you know. If you do have uh, time to casually read a couple hundred pages, even just reading the summary of this is really an important takeaway. So, let's talk about the key guidelines for adults. As as Britt said, there are guidelines for every kind of population that you could think of. But what we generally know is that adults should move more and sit less throughout the day. Now, it doesn't stop there, right? Like, that's a pet peeve of mine when people are like, move more, Um, right? Like, yes, of course, we want you to move more. We also know from evidence that some physical activity is better than none. And adults who sit less and do any amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity gain some health benefits. So we know from, you know, longitudinal studies, from big cohort studies that, some physical activity is protective when you compare that to somebody who does pretty much nothing except their activities of daily living. But what we do know Yes and Britt, I'll throw it over to you, is, you know, for substantial health benefits, adults should be doing sort of this minimum dose that you may have heard of before. So tell us about that, Britt.
0: Yeah, so the the actual exercise prescription we talk about is 150 minutes. So that's two and a half hours to 300 minutes of moderate intensity activity. So when we talk about moderate, moderate to vigorous intensity activity, that means uh, a certain level of uh, intensity that's associated with your physical activities. So typically this is beyond activities of daily living, although some may qualify depending on how rigorously you perform them. But the minimum dose that we want adults to be getting is 150 minutes per week, ideally spread out across the week in, uh, you know, different different amounts of bouts is fine. Um, we also have a recommendation for a, an alternative of 75 minutes of vigorous intensity activity or some sort of combination of the two. Um, So again, this is the minimum effect said to be the minimum effective dose. Certainly more physical activity. Some uh, has some enhanced benefits up to a point. Um, But along with that, that's, that's strictly aerobic physical Mm -hmm. activity. So when we talk about resistance training, um, Recommendations; those are thought to be completely separate from these aerobic uh, bouts, which I think a lot of people get get it wrong or don't really understand that whenever they talk about the benefits of physical activity, um, because there are different benefits from aerobic training versus resistance yes. training, and we want people to be getting both. You know, so having a well-rounded physical activity program where you're participating in the 150 minutes of uh, moderate to vigorous physical activity, but also two days or more of resistance training activity of all major mm-hmm. muscle groups. So those are kind of the broad general guidelines. And again, those are said to be the minimum uh, minimum amount that people should be participating in. And I guarantee you that if you were to poll people <laughs> in your life, I mean, and to see who meets these guidelines and who doesn't, you know, according to this. You might be surprised as people that you thought maybe were – I think people tend to think that they're more active Mm -hmm. than they are um, because they don't quite understand that intensity factor. And that's really important when we talk about some of these benefits. Yes.
1: And I – just piggybacking off of what you said about pulling the people that you know, if we actually look at – Really big cohort data, we learn (laughs) that whether you break it down, you know, between men and women or you're looking at different age groups, it's the data are not very promising. Like it is less than 25% of the adult population, and less than 25% actually sounds pretty generous. It's more like, depending on what you're looking at, 16%, 18%. 17% meet both the aerobic guidelines and the strength guidelines. I mean, that's a, you know, less than one in five uh, chance. So it's, you know, you know, not very many people are actually getting this minimum dose. And that's a big area of focus in the physical activity guidelines and in public health and health promotion overall. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's just Mm -hmm. something we want to point out too. So say you are the one in five people meeting these physical activity recommendations, talk to us, bit about some of the health benefits that are associated with it. Now, again, there's an intensity factor here, right? Like walking really, really slow. We're never getting out of breath. You never meet and pass those like ventilatory thresholds. If you're a physiology nerd, um, you know, you may not be necessarily getting all of these benefits, right? But if you are, there's so many. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there are a ton of benefits that can be associated with participation in physical activity at the right intensities and the right amounts. So, this is not an exhaustive list. I'm not going to go through all of these, but I mean, we see a lower risk of all cause mortality. Huge. (laughs) You're alive. Um, A lower risk of cardiovascular disease mortality, a lower risk of hypertension or high blood pressure, lower risk of type 2 diabetes, lower risk of an adverse blood lipid profile. Um, we have a improved quality of life, which is, you know, huge, amazing. And I'm not, I just want to point out too, that none of the benefits that I've listed so far there, these are independent of weight loss. We're talking about physical participation and physical activity right now. So I think, you know, weight loss can be seen as a, um, benefit participate to participating in this, but these are all independent of that. So, we see improved physical function, improved bone health, uh, lower risk of falls in older adults. We see reduced risk of depression, um, a lower risk of fall related injuries in older adults. So, these are all, you know, really, really amazing benefits to health concerns that are really prevalent as people, especially as people yeah. age. Um, so, physical activity, although there are certain barriers and related related to access of which we're gonna to touch on that. But in general, you know, getting people to be physically active can be so beneficial for their health in way more ways than I think is really presented. And I think we're seeing that play out in real time with the COVID-19 pandemic and that people are realizing that, you know, taking your health seriously is really important and it really can mean like living or yeah. not for for some folks which is you know it's it's really serious but it's really awesome that we have this tool that we know about that can that can improve all of these things
1: absolutely and and i want to expand on something you touched upon which is you know we're in this for the long game right like we're trying to improve quality of life reduce the risk of falls and fall related injuries in older adults right like we're talking about the compounded effects of being physically active over a lifetime, not like some kind of crash 12 week thing where you're really active mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, good, I've got all these health benefits. Like, I'm going to kind of dial it back now, right? This is, you know, of course, there are ebbs and flows for every single person with different stages of life, but in all ages, in all life stages, physical activity is important. When related to so many different health outcomes, and that's why Britt and I are so passionate about physical activity promotion. It's it's a theme you see on our Instagram pages. It's something you've probably heard in every single episode of this podcast so far. That's because we really believe that you know so many there's so many good things that can come from it.
0: Um, yeah, and I think the the way that we're approaching this conversation is. You know, we wanted to do this because I feel like a lot of what I've seen, and I don't know about you, Rachel, but in the online space, I've seen a lot of this kind of like Mm -hmm. shaming people into trying to be active because of COVID. And I don't think that approach is one, helpful, two, kind, or three, like going to help in the long run. Agreed. Uh, So- Yeah.
1: Behavior change. So I think behavior change is really hard. And there is some evidence to suggest, like, some kind of triggering event, like maybe recovering from COVID, might elicit some, you know, change in your behavior or like some desire to change your behavior. But that's certainly not the case for Mm -hmm. lots of people and probably not the case for most people. So I completely agree. And again, These are the health benefits we know about physical activity, like independent of weight loss and also independent of COVID-19. So this is just like what we generally know to be true um, about physical activity. So let's take it now to like, now that we know this, we all have the same foundation of physical activity as it's linked to health outcomes and look at the evidence related to COVID-19. So-
0: so we're going to talk about a couple of, of writings, not both of them, not all of them are publications necessarily, like um, peer-reviewed publications, but we will link these in the show notes for you to read yourselves because they are open access. So we'll make sure that you have the links to them and you can read them yourself as well. But let's start out by talking about the call to action that was written by Jim Salas back at the very beginning of COVID in April of 20, 20, 2020, <laughs> not 2019.
1: What year is it? I
0: don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I know. What what, what even year is it? I don't know.
1: So um, I remember seeing this as soon as it got posted. Um, it was posted to ACSM's Exercises Medicine page. And I believe I got an email about it just because I'm a member of ACSM. I know you are too, Britt. And this mm-hmm. was a little bit controversial and actually had some press around it at the time because what uh, Jim Salas was talking about was the importance of promoting physical activity right as shutdowns were happening. So you think about early April of last year, of 2020, most states in the U.S. were shutting down. Um, things were completely locked down. We really had no idea how long COVID-19 would last. We didn't know very much about the virus itself or the potential long-lasting implications for you know people who have survived COVID-19. We just really didn't know what we were dealing with yet. And so he was really calling for, you know, access to remain open to places where people could be physically active outside for, um, you know, exercise professionals to continue to reach clients however they could to help them stay physically active. And he also talked a lot about in this call to action, you know, the need for local governments to really stand behind this from a public health perspective And I don't think this was very, this definitely wasn't at the forefront of many public, uh, you know, many government minds, probably, right? Like they were dealing with this massive crisis that was making a lot of people all over the world very sick. And so um, this was a really interesting approach. And he also talked about biological plausibility and what we mean by that when we think about epidemiology and uh, physiology and how physical activity can help with a lot of the health outcomes we're talking about, you know, it's linked to to biology and physiology, right? Like there are different Mm -hmm. mechanisms of action for a lot of the health outcomes that we just discussed. And so he went into a little bit of science specifically talking about how exercise can improve your immune system. And so his hypothesis was that people who are physically active will have an easier time recovering um, if they do get COVID.
0: Yeah, and one of the other interesting things that I thought that he mentioned um, and referred to in the article was, so he's a health psychologist. For those of you who aren't familiar with Jim Salas, he's a very well-known person in the field of health Mm -hmm. psychology and exercise science. He's been around for decades researching this. And something that he brought up that I think I've seen more in the later stages of COVID, but at the beginning, I don't think a lot of people, like you were saying, it wasn't on the forefront of their minds was this psychological stress and the long-term effects of that and how, um, you know, having long-term or any psychological stress does create an imbalance between cortisol and other hormones that are related to your immune system and inflammation, like you're saying, Rach. And, you know, That combined with the actual effects of the disease itself, if you were to get it, you know, is, there's a spot, there's a place for physical activity to be involved here. And um, I think that that is a really important consideration, you know, and he goes on to say how we're already inactive, largely inactive. Um, Like we were talking about the statistics before, how they're just abysmal with how many people participate in physical activity for a, a lot of reasons, right? Um, and one of the things that he's really passionate about and other people in the field of, you know, physical activity promotion are pa- passionate about is that giving people the access that they need to be physically active if they can. So with, you know, gyms closing and trails closing and all, Parks you know, closing, at the beginning everything. of the pandemic, yeah. yeah, everything, everything was closed. So unless you had a home gym lined up and ready to go, which now a lot of people do, but a year ago, many people did not, Um, you know, that that is something to be addressed because we already know that people who are of a lower SES, a lower socioeconomic status that have less access to these things to begin with are already less active. They're already going, you know, we see now over the last year that they've been hit with COVID more than other populations and more than other demographics and it's disproportionately affecting those people and you can't help but to see how it's all Mm -hmm. linked um it's very like in plain sight whenever we look at this data and really think about you know how this pandemic has unfolded it's just interesting now to read this again a year later and how much has changed well (laughs) and
1: how much you know he was right about right? Like at the time, it really ruffled a lot of feathers. Um, I actually remember sharing this with our executive team. You know, we had just shut down at Orange Theory, all of our studios, all 1400 of them. That's a a big decision. And that's got a real big impact on the bottom line for any business. Um, I remember sharing this Mm -hmm. with them and being a fitness company. I mean, everyone was pretty excited to get rallied behind this similar mindset, but I imagine The fitness industry may have been an exception, right? To how they felt when they read this, right? So,
0: right, 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 because we're already
1: kind (laughs) of yeah, exactly. (laughs) So fast forward like an entire year, and just actually, I think last week or within the last two weeks, we see a really huge sample size study come out, um, and it was. All over the news. I mean, these are the headlines that actually spurred us to make this episode. Um, and the title of the paper is Physical Inactivity is Associated with a Higher Risk for Severe COVID 19 Outcomes, a study in 48,440 adult patients. Um, and so this is by Robert Salas. We don't know if they're related. I don't know. We need to look that up.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Jim's house is on this paper okay, too. As well. Well, he's a yeah, co-author. He's, he's
1: everywhere. Okay. So yeah. um, so anyways, this came out. It says it was accepted for publication March 30th, so not too long ago. And I feel like it really hit the uh, media after it got published on April 13th. So You might have seen on like the nightly news, like physical activity is important for health outcomes. Um, And we don't mean to make light of that. We obviously are incredibly passionate about the links between physical activity and health outcomes. But this paper, what it does have, and I want to talk a little bit about this type of paper because it's different than what people may be used to reading um, who are in the field of exercise science a little bit. It is what it does have is a really, really big sample size of people who were confirmed to have COVID-19. And then we were they were also able to get uh, some self-reported physical activity data from them from the past couple of years. And so they were able to make some pretty uh, awesome conclusions because the sample size was so big. So Britt, talk to us about this type of study, right? Because It's an epidemiological approach, and that's really different than like a randomized controlled trial looking at sprint interval training and postprandial lipemia and like a small sample of grad students. Like, right, it's a really different approach.
0: Yes, it's a very different approach. So, in epidemiological physical activity data in general, um, you will see a lot of times they still use self reported physical activity data for one, which you don't see as much. Uh, anymore, except for these really mm-hmm. large cohorts. So even now with, you know, and Haynes data, they're starting to use accelerometers. So that's another really big data set. But like for the most part, you know, self-report is still going to be the easiest way yeah. to reach people and to get a lot of data. So in this study in particular, when they screened for people, they screened over a hundred thousand participants, And excluded them based on certain criteria, and their final sample size ended up being 48,000. But that's a lot of people. So, this really, really large data set, really, really large amount of participants allows them to do things with the data that you cannot do with a smaller Mm -hmm. sample size. So, although there are limitations in the self reported nature of the data, the sheer size of the data set kind of offsets that, if you will, in many ways, because they have so such a wide range of data points. So the sheer amount of data is just, you know, very different compared to a typical exercise training study. Um. And because of that, they often don't have the the perfect study design when they go to ask the research question. So they kind of have to do what they can with what they have. So in this study, for example, it was specific to COVID-19, right? And they wanted to know the rates of physical activity prior to and during and after the participant had COVID. But in an ideal world, they would have had the participants be self-reporting their physical activity in real time, right? And not not retrospectively trying to. Right. So, you know, obviously that's not ideal, but it was the best that they could do for this study. So that's what they did. So they have, you know, Recall data from I think 2018 and 2019, Mm -hmm. and then the the participant would have had to test positive for COVID some at some point in 2020. So from January to October. Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. And let's talk about who was in this sample, right? Because that's also an important thing to kind of understand. And we had so many people. They had so many people. And what they report in the manuscript is that the population had a mean age of about 47 and a half years with a really big standard deviation of 17 years. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's a a pretty big range. So we are looking at an adult population, just like they said. And I think really interestingly, only 6.4% were reported (laughs) consistently meeting the physical activity guidelines. Okay, 6.4. So we were talking about bleak before, this is, uh, it makes me just really sad inside. Um, now they did have several people that reported some level of physical activity, but not enough to meet the guidelines. And so they also had a a pretty good, uh, representation of, of different groups of people, um, different racial and ethnic groups, which is important in any big study too. So, and then of course, um, if we were looking at BMI, this was a sample of people that, by and large, were overweight or obese, which you know is generally representative of the population. So this is not a surprise, right? They had such a big sample; it's fairly representative of the adult population. So um, I yeah. think it's important. And interesting.
0: Sorry, I was say, uh, uh, interestingly enough, um, about half of the study cohort, so about half of the sample of forty-eight thousand, had no comorbidities, while mm. 17, 17.4% of them had at least one, and thir- 31.3% of them had two or more comorbidities. And
1: you're hearing me yeah. cringe because I'm thinking about how few of them were physically active and how if they were just physically active, likely many of those comorbidities were preventable. Not always, right? There's, yeah. there's other – Of course, there are many other factors, but physical activity, as we learned earlier, (laughs) can be helpful for a lot of these. So it's important to, you know, to always, like, look at who's being studied. And here they have a a varied and massive sample, which is really good. So let's talk about um, the key findings, Britt. Yeah,
0: so in – In summary, some of the main findings that they found was that patients with COVID-19 who were consistently inactive during the two years before the pandemic, so this is the 2018-2019 physical activity levels, were more likely to be hospitalized, admitted to the ICU, and die than patients who were consistently meeting the physical activity guidelines. So when that group was compared to the people who were were meeting the guidelines, there was a big difference. Um, As far as outcomes in that sense, which is, again, goes back to that, what we were talking about is this chronic participation in physical activity. So, you know, over a lifetime, you know, that those reps add up. And uh, you know, a lifetime of physical activity is what we're what we're after. They also found that, other than an advanced age and history of organ transplant, physical activity was the strongest risk factor for severe COVID nineteen. Wow! Outcomes.
1: Wow! 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 Yeah, Oof, that's crazy. And then, um, lastly, they found here that meeting the U.S. physical activity guidelines, which we talked about, is you know at minimum, one hundred and fifty minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity plus two days of strength training, or at least two days, I should say at least two days. We want people to do two to three, like let's get that in there. (laughs) Um, um, But if if you do meet those, um, but even those doing some physical activity had lower risk for severe COVID-19 outcomes. So that's, you know, of course meeting them was the best, but even if you did something, your risk was reduced. So I think that's also a very important takeaway like some is better than none. So if you are somebody who's struggling with being physically active right now, I know we've all been through phases like that. Um and you don't have to go from 0 to 150 minutes, right? There's something that you can do to make baby steps along the way and kind of get going.
0: Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, for many people, the pandemic was a chance for them to kind of reevaluate the way they wanted to be physically active and you know that's great too there's there's still not one way to be physically active the moral of the story here too it's just like to participate in physical activity to participate in strength training because it's good for you you know I think a lot of people you know unfortunately did get the coronavirus and are doing better now but my goodness it just I feel like it's just so important now more than ever to like really value your health. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way. They're feeling very lucky to be healthy. And if we are healthy, let's keep it that way by being as being physically active and meeting these guidelines. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think one of the the good call to calls to action from this paper, You know, we were poking some fun earlier saying when we're reading it, we're like, yes, like this is consistent with what we've known for a long time. But the call to action for people reading the paper, like policymakers, medical doctors, healthcare providers, is to think about physical activity as something that they're recommending, as something that they're promoting, as something that their policies allow communities to engage in. And that goes back to the access that we talked about before, the access, the education, the knowledge Mm -hmm. share the social support, all of that's important when it comes to physical activity, behavior change. Again, the money, the money to fund these things.
0: That's another huge, I hope next season on the podcast, I hope to have our friend Nika on there who works for the the government as a PhD. She's a a PhD in nutrition, but to talk about policy because really like we can harp on this all we want, but policy has to change for the money to to be funding these things and you know that's kind of the big public health message of this all you know I think there are so many levels and they're all important as far as you know delivery of this information from personal trainers all the way up to the Mm -hmm. policymakers. but let's not forget that money is a huge part of this so investing into programs that are going to prioritize this I think is one really important thing that all of these papers and that position stand that we read from Jim Salas, like those are all things that people read and, and they're from experts that they say, okay, this is important. This is worth us in, to yep. invest in. Um, it's a huge part of all of this. Yeah,
1: absolutely. When you were describing that, I was thinking of, the social ecological model and all of the like little concentric circles. I wonder if we can post like an image of that in the show notes or link to, I think we both have posts on our Insta pages about that because that's it. That's exactly what that sort of uh, behavior change model or public health model is really pointing at. Like this is important at every level and for there to be systemic change, we need all the levels to lean Mm -hmm. in. So Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so gosh yeah. we just covered so much good info um we hope you enjoyed this episode we had a lot of fun putting it together and our next episode is actually going to be the very last one of season one of the science and sass podcast so make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss out uh we're going to be recapping a lot of the content that we covered this season as well as some lessons learned and some life updates that we both have to share too so thank you guys so much Bye.